Hey everybody, this is Dave Broadback. I'm coming to you live. Well, it's live right now. It's recorded for you. But coming to you uh, from what I have often called my podcast studio, which is actually uh, my daughter's bedroom, old bedroom. Anyway, uh, the lecture you're about to hear is for Psychology 3196, Human Evolutionary Psychology. Uh, hope you like it. Is because this piece of junk is downloading my profile and it may take a week. I'm just going to start. I actually have these things in front of me and we'll go from there. Um, so, I guess the first question people might ask is why would you study psychology um, from an evolutionary perspective? And I guess part of that, people might have that question because they don't really quite know. what psychology is supposed to be, right? So maybe the case that people don't really know that psychology is a scientific study of evolution, uh, sorry, of, of cognition and behavior. So if you don't know that, it's going to be one of these cases where you look at it and go, well, I don't even know why you would do it that way. But when you find out that it's a scientific thing, and when you think about us being animals, even if you're only interested in, in, in humans, you know, us being animals, then it makes a bit of sense. Okay. Um, Darwin actually, in, in Origin of Species, talked about psychology. He talked about behavior. He talked about cognition. He didn't use the words evolutionary psychology because people didn't say that in 1858. But he talked about it in all but name. Right? So Charles Darwin actually was, was you know, the guy who discovers evolution by natural selection, says we can look at behavior, we can look at cognition, and we can look at these things from an evolutionary perspective. Okay, so Darwin's kind of given us permission. Oh, look at this, it's loaded. And on that day there was great rejoicing, such that things loaded. And then it took forever to, for Google Chrome to update. Oh, okay. Let's see. The other thing is, I don't know if you guys know this, I don't see very well. Ooh, well, maybe I can make this into a discrimination case. <laughs> I can't see. So, so Darwin talked about it. William James. Now, how do you guys know who William James is? Right? Slideshow. Really, basically, book for psychology. So James 
was in fact very into evolution. Evolution really was influencing all of science back then, and James was way into this stuff. James, uh, in fact, you know, was part of a school of psychology called functionalism, which is about the function of behavior and cognition. Let's see how this thing works. Not that well. Um, Hey, this is a piece of crap. Okay. So, one of the issues, though, that comes up here is that people think of psychology as, quote, social science. I don't like this whole social science versus natural science distinction. And I don't think you should either. Because it's a false dichotomy. You understand? I mean, just because you say you're using, you're studying something that is, quote, social doesn't mean that you aren't using the same method. So what's wrong with it following the same sort of sets of rules? But what's happened to sort of social sciences, if you want to call them that over the years, is they've adhered to something what Steve Pinker calls the standard social science model. So you guys have heard this, heard me talk about this before when I talked about uh, in, in animal behavior. The standard social science model, um, that is going to affect research, it's going to affect hypotheses, all these things. And I'm not saying there hasn't been really good stuff that's come out of all the other social, social, social sciences over here, so I'm not saying that that would be bullshit, and I try not to peddle in that. The thing is, the idea of what we want to call the standard social science model, which I'm going to go over in a second, is that pretty much at odds with evolutionary theory, and frankly with reality. Right? And I'm pro-reality. <coughs> Can you turn this thing on? Oh, this isn't on. I didn't know that'd be cool. So excited. Except that that went the wrong way. That's okay. I got it. Okay. Assumptions of standard social science model. First of all, blank slate. Um, the idea that everything starts out, and let's just use people. Let's not even concern ourselves with non, the non-humans, the more interesting parts of psychology. But still, we all are equal. I didn't say not equal rights. I didn't say not equal opportunity. I said equal ability in everything. And then, and then the environment writes upon us somehow a any differences that happen. That environment, by the way, is anything that isn't. See, let's, let's, and again, there's a false dichotomy being made here. <coughs> that anything isn't genetic, anything isn't biological, any biological process. Any man can grow up to be president, which apparently now is true. If, they, if you just practice hard enough, you'll be able to also score 92 goals in an NHL season. If you just applied yourself hard and had better teachers, you'd all get A pluses. But the idea of a blank slate, actually, that, that's an implication thereof, right? That if literally we all had exactly the same environment, we'd all turn out exactly the same. Yes? Question so far? Okay, that's the first sort of assumption. The second, 
which follows from the first, then, is that biology is irrelevant. Because if the only thing that matters is experience, then biology itself is irrelevant. Other than, you know, getting food in you and, and, and water and oxygen, it's now completely irrelevant. Doesn't that follow? And this is a, an extra step that isn't typically thought of, I mean, but it is thus follow. It, there, therefore, there are only a few learning mechanisms. Because if we're all exactly the same, there must be only a very small number of mechanisms for getting information in. And it's basically associations. Associating event A1 with event 2. So what this says is that if only it were so, by the way, wouldn't it be nice? Very nice. Everybody really did have an equal share of everything, and all we had to do was treat everybody equally. Wouldn't that be nice? Great to fix the world that way. That's not work. So, <laughs> development needs biology. Things change over time, that's not. And they, I don't see how you can't think about the unfolding of the genetic code without thinking of the genetic code. It seemed like a thing one could do. Um, so when you hear language, you learn language. And in fact, when you hear a specific language, whatever that language may be, right? How many people here's first language is English? First language is English. Okay. Anybody else have a different one? It's different than English. It's French. French. Okay. Anybody else? With an interesting first language? Yeah. What you got? Great. Great. Very nice. Okay. Anybody else have an interesting first language that is in English? Or a non-interesting language that's possible for you? So yeah, different languages. So you grew up here in Greek. You grew up here in French. I grew up here in English and swearing. You learn to speak Greek. You still speak Greek? I do. Yeah, you still speak French? Sure. French, you got it. Uh, I still speak English. Ish. I swear like a son of a bitch. Um, the interesting thing is, we're prepared to learn language, aren't we? Did you have to sit? Did your parents sit you down and make you learn language? No. Right? They didn't have to. We're hooked up that way. Most of us don't remember being super young when we first were exposed to language. Anybody have a little brother or sister they remember being a baby? Yeah, sure, a lot of us, right? Do you remember your parents sitting down and tutoring them in their language? No, of course not. They just talked to them. And then one day they look at you and go, so how's it going? You know, what? You're speaking sentences? That's cool. We're hooked up to learn language. Um, no matter how many hockey statistics I tell you, you will not become a hockey statistics expert by age four. I tried this with two children. It doesn't work. 
<clears throat> I told both my kids about the legendary exploits of Maurice Rocket Richard, and neither of them tell me a thing about it. it. Makes me sad. Dramatic figure we threw it. John would somehow turn the discussion over to a plane crashes. But <laughs> So you're not, it's funny, so there's different learning, there's got to be some special learning mechanism for language, there is. It's especially human, by the way, it's very cool. One of the things that makes us so cool is that we have language. So why is that? Um, my parents thought, now I guess my mom's thought, never learned to speak English. Never ever really learned to speak English. You know why? Because it's a dog. Dogs can't talk. Can dogs associate a, a word with the thing? Sure. Can they actually learn a language? You know, syntactic, symbolic language. It's not a thing dogs can do. Why can't you remember where you cashed 30,000 seeds six months ago? Because you're not a freaking Clark's Nutcracker. That's why. Yeah, can humans do something really cool called writing it all down? Yeah, we can do that. We're good at that. We can't fly either, but you know what we can do? We can invent planes. <laughs> humans are pretty great. Humans are pretty great. So it's funny. We I don't think any of us would have any problem with either of these things. Neither of us would say, oh, well, um, dogs can't do that because they're dogs. Clark Snuckrackers can do that because they're Clark Snuckrackers. But if you say there's human nature, some people go, oh, no, 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 no. It's a blank slate. I think part of the reason is that people confuse someone saying we're not all equal with saying that means then that we should not all have equal opportunity and rights. One's a political statement, and one is something entirely different. So there is a, such a thing as human nature, is what I'm trying to say here. There are cultural universes. Okay? Every culture cooks. Every culture cooks food. Every single, we all, we all cook food. We don't cook all our food all the time, but every culture cooks food. That's just, just pick one end of the air. So we start getting one of the problems that happens in the sort of standard sort of science approach to, to, to well to science is that we're dividing nature and nurture into two different things, there, which is kind of silly. You can't have nature without nurture. You cannot have an environment without some genes. Well, you can, but nothing lives in it, right? Um, it's called the interaction principle. It's this idea. And biologists have known this for years. <laughs> It's often the case that biology students look at me and go, people think that? It's like, yeah, there are people who think that we don't worry, that, all, that you can divide it up into an environmental effect and a genetic effect. Now, can you talk about heritability ratios? I think that no one's denied that. But those are about populations, and those are about averages. They are not about individuals, and they are variance estimates. So the idea is that things interact. People, how many people, how many times have you heard this? Oh, well, that's caused by the way you were brought up. 
oh no, that's caused by the parent's genetics. Like you could say, why is kid X so smart? Oh, because parents are professors. You must be smart people. Oh, they also have a lot of books in their house, and books around is also a good buyer. Well, it's probably both true. In fact, I don't think one would come from the other, and the other from the other one, and then there's the chicken with the egg and the what have you. Right? So genes don't set a limit. This is, this is a really common, I've heard a lot of people say this, oh, sure, genetic effect, sure. What genes do is they say, you can go this far, and then the environment kind of fills it up. And I ask people like that to go, please take a genetics class. Because the world is not like that. Genetics are complicated as hell. Right? It'd be nice if the world worked like that. So when you're born, we look at your genotype and say, you have the, well, Smithers, you have the brain and the stagecoach tip trip tipper. Move you along over here. We'll fill you up just enough. So learning, this is a, a great environmental thing, learning, needs a mechanism to allow experience to change behavior. That mechanism is something that's built in. Which may then allow, say, for other genes to express themselves. So if we take the standard social science model and put it in with the other natural, with the natural sciences, which again, I don't like that distinction, we can't study behavior in a vacuum. And this is, this is one of the things you often get from people that sort of support this notion, is that, yes, we're just studying behavior, nothing biological. Just behavior. But would you ignore biology? Would you say, we're studying chemistry. Let's ignore the physics kids. That would seem really stupid, wouldn't it? Oh, please. Yeah. Dave, could you go to the first point again? Yeah. So what I'm saying is you can't study behavior in a vacuum. So you can't ignore the biology that leads to the, the biological unit, to quote Viger from Star Trek One, the motion picture. You can't ignore the biological unit that's doing the behavior because it's a biological unit. Right? So you can't just say, oh, this is just behavior. You say, yeah, but who's doing the behavior? Something that, is, that has biology that makes it work. Yeah. Make sense? Questions, other questions? Good question. Like I said, exempting the behavior of organisms from the principles of biology is like exempting the behavior of atoms from the principles of physics. Oh, we're just, we're just studying chemistry. Let's not talk about physics. You wouldn't do that. If someone said that, you'd go, okay, time to find another chemistry class. It seems kind of silly. What I'm trying to make, the, the, the sort of case I'm trying to make here is that we have to look at biology when we look at behavior. So we can't ignore evolution of the of sociology, so, sociality rather, in species, and other species, and in us. We're a really social species. We're amazingly social, right? Look at all you guys sitting here quietly. This wouldn't happen in really any other animal species. So, pretty special. 
we, this is a really cool characteristic of humans. So we could look back and say, well, where does that come from? What's the function of that? Why did that happen? It's a cool set of questions we can ask. What is it that's so special about humans compared to other apes? That it's made us dissocial. I don't know the answer necessarily. I, I, I have some guesses, but we'll get to that. But what's so special about this ape, these apes, all you apes, compared to if we had a bunch of chimps in here? There's something very special about our history. Very special. Let's look at that. Isn't that a cool question? No, 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 no biology. We won't have any biology in here. Okay. A lot of you guys took animal behavior. Know about this? The idea of the four whys. Right? Nico Tinbergen came up with this in 1960-something. And he talked about proximate versus ultimate explanations. Proximate explanations happen within an animal's lifetime. Ultimate explanations happen within over-evolutionary time. So one of the proximate ones is development. So change over time within the animal's lifetime. One of the proximate ones is physiology. So you're, you're wired up. And then an ultimate explanation. I hate the word ultimate, by the way, because it sounds like it's better than proximate. It's not. It just, I don't like the word. But it's a word that's used. So it's just not a, it's a poor choice. It's too bad if you really chose that word. So it's historical. So that's how things have changed over evolutionary time. And selective pressures. In other words, what is the evolutionary history? What was the evolutionary advantage of this behavior over other possible behaviors. Okay. <coughs> Question so far? So to totally understand any characteristic, including behavior, we have to understand all these things. You're never going to always answer all those things with one experiment or with one article. But to totally understand something, you have to understand all those things. Psychology is concentrated on these two. Right? Proximate ones. And that's fine. But it's telling half the story. Telling half of the story. So why not care a little bit about the evolutionary history of something? And the adaptive significance of something. Questions so far?
So I'm arguing that there's, there's something called human nature. And that's what this course will be arguing. Um, now, anthropologist Margaret Mead, I think, argued that there was no such thing as human nature. That, and this was uh, her work done in uh, with Pacific Islander people, um, showing their attitudes towards sex. Among, among other things, that was one of the big things. Um, basically, saying that. Sort of traditional sex roles that we would see uh, would be gone. Uh, there was sort of thing. It was basically free love for everyone. The sixties, basically. Um, so this is in the early part of last century, and this was picked up, and this was exceedingly influential. Um, so everything was culture. Everything was social. There was no effect of biology among humans because obviously this group of people were different than everybody else. They just had a whole different outlook on things. Sure. By the way, um, anybody here to find culture for me? Yeah, rough. Let's see if we can workshop a definition of culture. I got an idea. Please. Uh, traditions that have been passed on. Traditions that have been passed on. Like that. Any other ideas? Patterns of behavior and thinking among a group of people that are passed on. Is that sensible? Does that sound like what culture is to you to me? I don't mean like culture. Oh, it's really simple. Because we know all people enjoy classical music talk like that. No, 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 no. They all listen to the CBC. They all have those fake CBC accents. Can you hear those people listen to speak like this. Nobody talks like that. Yeah, old people. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, your grandmother's probably like 10 years older than me. No, she's no. like 85. Oh, good. My dad's like, like 60. Okay, so your dad's older than me. Still students with parents older than me. I like that. They had me late. <laughs> so culture is a pattern of behavior and thinking among a group of people. Yeah, is that, does that sound okay? I mean, like, I'm no expert in culture. I'm completely not cultured. Is that, is that okay? Oh, does that make sense? So you're saying that the pattern of behavior and thinking among people is best explained by the pattern of thinking and behavior among people. Oh, I see. Well played. So, that's weird. <laughs> Sounds like a tautology, a touch, I don't know. Huge effect in anthropology, sociology, and psychology. Okay, so it's a big thing. And me did some great work knowing... I, the problem is it was overplayed. I, wrong, I'm being a little strong here. But it certainly isn't thought of that there is no effect that... Is it her work is in question? I'm going to say that. Okay? That it was just all the environment and there was no effect of, say, biology. 
I like to think of people, on the other hand, as far as, I like to think of sort of theoretically universal people, human nature. And there are cultural universals, right? Children play. That's a cultural. People cook food. Division of labor among sexes. Right? Uh, some sort of marriage ceremony. When I say marriage, it doesn't have to be like forever. It could be like some sort of ceremony before you have sex and make a baby. Uh, cultural universes. Homosexuality. Every culture. Uh, let's go. Let's get some more here. Religion? Religion. That's what I was sitting on. Yeah, religion. There has been religion in every culture ever. Music is pretty much a cultural universe. There's some things you can say about people. Those things are human nature. Some sort of decision-making process. So, in other words, decisions are made somehow collectively. Or for the collective. Would education count? I think education, we could say teaching to the young. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I think it's quite fair. Please. Social hierarchy? Social hierarchy is probably, is, is probably almost certainly true. I don't think there's ever, as much as we sit here and very often <coughs> romanticize, oh, everybody's equal, except some guys are more equal than others. <coughs> That's almost always been the case in a hierarchy. Okay. So, so I think there are things... I think thinking of those things is cool because it says that there are things that are universal among humans. It's hard to change a hundred years worth of scholarly work and say, stop thinking everything's culture. It's a tough move. Um, especially when, you know, whenever a new sort of approach to a discipline comes up, now and then there's a lunatic fringe that shakes up and ruins it for everyone. And that has happened in this field before because people misunderstand how biology works and how evolution works. So just because it's human nature, it doesn't mean stuff is unchangeable. I would say that I would probably make a, I, I could make, I think, a pretty compelling argument that there is a really nice evolutionary explanation for racism. When I said nice, I didn't mean I think I like it, but I think it's a pretty good explanation. There was a time when when you saw people who looked different than you, they were not related to you, so probably being mean to them was a very good idea or not as nice to them as being nice to people who look like you. Right? So we can talk about variability due to the environment, to the variability in the environment. And variability, this variability of phenotype, in other words, in your behavior, your animal behavior, and variability due to variability in genes. So we can do that overall for groups and looking at behavior. That's an easy thing to do. So we can say, for example, the heritability. So if we look at the variability in 
genes and the variability in human height, it's about 0.8. In other words, about 0.8, of the variability in human height can be explained by variability in genes. That does not, however, mean that everything up to here is my genes and everything from here up is the environment. Right? And the interaction of those things is really the important thing. Okay? There's a lot of examples here. Um, on heritability and variability in genes and environment. The book is nicely on violence. That's uh, awful, but it's a nicely reasoned bit. It's also the case, another great human universal is sexual jealousy. Sexual jealousy is just this, it's a human universal. Did you see recently there was something about, there was a TT monkey or a tiki monkey, and they found that there's sexual jealousy in them? Oh, oh, that doesn't surprise me. There's all kinds of behavior that looks a great deal like you would get sexual jealousy. There's all kinds of, you took out behavior last term, you know, there's all kinds of behavior that looks like horrible sexual assault. I mean, right? There, we don't call it that because there's, we don't think of ducks being moral. But ducks are awful, right? Foul. <coughs> <coughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You've been great. I'm out of here. Um, they're foul. You can have It's pretty good. I'm sure it's been made before, but I still like it. We think about... I talked about this the other day. Right? I talked about killer story and cheating on your spouse. Right? I talked about this the other day. We talked to introduce the ideas in the class. And I said that when you're cheating on your spouse, if you're a guy cheating on your wife, say you're with your lover, you're going to, your ejaculate has more sperm in it than it does when you are with your, I'm just going to say wife. You can substitute girlfriend there if you want, or partner, or whatever term you like. Okay? You also are going to have more killer sperm in your ejaculate than you would. When you're with your wife. Because you might think, well, why would that be? Because when she goes back with whoever she's with, the idea is to kill his sperm, sperm competition in vivo. What about swingers? Oh, that, there's, that, that's where a lot of these data come from. Oh. Yeah. Um, as the, the book Killer Sperm, um, Ads were putting in the newspapers in major cities in the UK, asking people to be able to collect uh, both uh, vaginal secretion samples and uh, ejaculate samples for clients. Yeah. But they also got some for people who were literally cheating on their, their spouses. And then did they like narc on them, catch them on like. No, no, no. no. Is that, that's that, that's that's that. That's that. That's that. Can't do that. Yeah, like they give you a reality show. <laughs> so people, when they're cheating on their spouses, don't know it, but their bodies are trying to make babies, which is pretty much the last thing you want to do. 
the last thing you want to do is like, Oh, yeah, well, uh, here's a friend of mine. You ever met her? She's pregnant with my baby. I shouldn't have said that part out loud. So one of the problems you have to, you really have to avoid in, in, in thinking about this kind of stuff is just because something's nat, quote, natural, just because something is has perhaps a biological basis, doesn't make it good or bad. Or right or wrong. Science itself is amoral. Knowledge is amoral. I'm amoral. No, it's not. So you got to keep that in mind. It's it's amoral. It's not. So if you find it, for example, as a rule, not for everyone, but as a rule, societies determine that monogamy is is the moral thing. Right? We have words for people that have more than one partner secretly. We call that cheating. We just use that word. It's, it's, it's like we say it's bad. We don't like that. Right? We don't say, now there are polyamorous people, and that's cool, and if that's their gig, I got friends like that, and that, that's your scene, that's fine. Just don't go to a Don't what? Don't go to a public. Anyway, we're learning details. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, that was Taylor's fault, clearly. Um, we've polygamy, which is one man, many. We've determined as a rule that's not the way to go. Right? But actually, that's the norm throughout human history. One could make the argument it's natural. Try that argument with your girlfriend. Guys. Just try that. See how that works. No, man, it's natural. Probably not going to fly. Right? Or, typically, in almost all cultures, women do the bulk of the child. One could even make the argument that women are built to do child care. They make food. I don't mean cooking, I mean they just make food. It just happens. That's pretty cool. But with us being mammals. But you know what? As society has determined over the last, and pretty recently, 30, 40 years, that that doesn't mean that guys should just walk in the house and ignore their children. Right? In fact, we think of guys that do that as just like, oh, loser. Yeah, what a, what a jerk. What kind of jerk does that? That's what we think of nowadays where there was a time when I doubt my father ever changed a diaper in his life. Like, I, I'm certain he didn't. Yeah, I'm pretty sure my dad died never having changed a diaper. I would be willing to put up the number of diapers I changed with our son, me against Isabel. I'm not saying I'm sure it would be equal, but pretty close. Just saying, I think. Probably not true, probably lying. <laughs> no, she'd probably say it was her, and she'd probably be right. She did spend a couple of years at home with the kid. But I was up, I was up with him at night all the time. After, after six months. The first six months, 
there wasn't a lot I could do, let's just say. Yeah, you can't breastfeed. Well, you can if you, men can lactate if they take a lot of um, prolactin and estrogen. I don't know if you have the holster. Well, there's that, but that involves putting on gear. Do guys actually do that? Guys do. Some guys do. No, no, no. I need to take the... No. <laughs> no, but men actually have all the equipment to lactate. Like, they actually did. Yeah. yeah. Sure. It's like all the tissues there. So you just choose... All the gears there. They choose not to. I think it's, it's like... The point is that we've decided as a society that men being involved in child care is good. Is that because of how long it takes to Child. No, I think it's probably we decided that women sitting at home doing nothing but looking after children wasn't really fair to women, and it wasn't fair to men to not bond with their kids as much. I think that's a little less. I don't understand that, but I'm talking in terms of the monogamy. Do you think that had to do with how long it takes to? Oh, I don't know. I think a human child. Well, the the, the, the interesting thing is there's a there's a, there's a section between the two sexes. There are two different strategies, right? For women, it's be choosy, and for men, it's much as you can, because you can. So then from an evolutionary perspective, where do you think the, the common practice of monogamy came from? Uh, I think it's hard to say where that came from. I think it's, it is pressure from, social. it's social pressure, but I think it's also, you know, it, it's probably the easiest way to raise a kid when you don't have a lot of resources. I think that's probably where it comes from. Yeah. Uh, incest taboo, I mean, that's very broad. Right, like it's everywhere. I mean, so because something is good or bad has nothing to do with it being natural or not. It's one of those things people always say. I don't like natural things. I only take. I only. I, don't, I, I would never do acid, man. Only mushrooms. I would say to people like that. You know what else is natural? Big pile of shit. Which the mushrooms grow. Yeah, exactly. I made that point once to a guy at a grocery store. I was picking up mushrooms, putting them in the bag, and the guy said, you know, you should use the tongs. I said, you realize these things grow actually literally in shit, right? <laughs> so we can be hooked up to be polygamous. We can actually have a predisposition to do that, but we choose not to do it. Most people, when they're in a monogamous relationship, are faithful to their partners. Um, data show that 90, this is Canadian data, 90% of people in a monogamous relationship have not cheated on their spouse in the last year, which is, or, or partner. So that includes people that are in much more recent relationships and also ones that are longer term. Oh, God, it's of course referring to um, one man, many One man, many women. But does that also apply to um, poly... Poly Andrus? Poly Andrus. Exceedingly rare. It does happen, but it's exceedingly rare. So it's much more common than for men to... Yeah. Because, and again, think about this from a strategic point of view. It makes... For a woman, it doesn't help to have extra men around as far as breeding. Right? Because she, it still takes her nine months to make a baby. Wait, does I, happen. Yeah, go ahead. Like, okay. <laughs> what about one woman, many women, or one guy, many guys? Like, obviously, it's oh, for, for ho homo homosexual things. Sexual things? Like, That's it's it's. This is one of those things that it's really hard to get a handle on. Yeah, because how many? 
how many instances do you even have that? Like, I've never heard of it. Oh, sure, it happens. But most people, I mean, society has made monogamy such a goal that, in fact, we have monogamy not only in heterosexual relationships but in homosexual relationships. It is thought of as the goal, right, as a rule? Right? So some conclusions about this, and then we'll go on to talk about natural selection. Um, what's called the EEA, the Era of Evolutionary Adaptation. This is where everything, all of us being hunter-gatherers up to very recently, this hasn't had a great deal of influence on us. And I say here, generals always fight the last war. And by that I mean that you're hooked up to fight the last war. You're hooked up to live on the savannah of Africa 200,000 years ago. Or even, if you want to make, you can say, you're hooked up to be hunter-gatherer 15,000 years ago, if you want to know but we're not hunter-gatherers for 15,000 years ago. None of us Don't forget about the levels, different levels of explanation either. It's an important thing to, to consider. The idea of uh, proximate and ultimate stuff. And just because something is biological does not make it right or wrong and is not an excuse for something. It should never be thought of that well, X is natural, ergo it is correct. There's also some left. Yeah, that's next. But if, just because something is biological does not make it right or wrong. Because there's social hierarchy, you mentioned this, that's probably got to do with our evolutionary history. Is it nice? <coughs> probably not. Oh, yeah, so proximate and ultimate convergence for wise levels of explanation. Oh, okay. Yep. All right. So, now any other questions on this stuff before I move on to the next little bit, which is the natural selection? What, what are you referring to as levels? So, proximate and ultimate oh, levels of explanation. Okay. Yep. Got it. So, next, let's go back to Google Chrome. Grab that. Now, let's talk a little bit about natural selection. Because we need, now, most of you guys know this stuff. Four years have never been taught at which my natural selection. It's okay, Kevin. Just want to know. Okay, good. So, um, I just showed those pictures because on the left is Charles Darwin, on the right is a long time ago, Jonathan David Darwin Broadbeck. He's watching King of the Hill. I wanted to name him Darwin. It was overruled by my wife and my daughter. So you named him Hank. So, uh, I love this quote. The theory of natural selection is so easy that anyone can misunderstand it. Yeah, it really is good. So Charles Darwin saw three problems in need of a solution, and Darwin was not the only person that saw this. Every other naturalist around saw these three problems. Right? Every other naturalist saw these things. Notice that he's a biologist, because you don't talk about biology before you talk about the publication of origin of species. That's sort of my rule. 
It's like how history for me started. History ends on June 23rd, 1965. Everything after that's current events. I was born that day. <laughs> I think it's a reasonable distinction. So these are issues that other people were struggling with as well. And here's the first problem. There's change in the flora and fauna of the earth. Things are changing. There's a fossil record. People discovered fossils. They're looking at things going, okay, there hasn't been a giant animal with teeth 12 feet long ever. I've seen 12 feet. Has that's as long as I'll do it. No. What's with these horses with toes? That's weird. There you go. You'll get this. So it's not controversial in Darwin's time, it's not controversial now, unless you're a little crazy. People saw this. It's what we today we what the general public calls evolution, change over time. <coughs> Which is, how it work? Right? This is the first problem. Second problem, uh, taxonomic relationship among living things. People love classifying stuff. You know why? Because there's nothing else biologists can do. There's no biology. They just look and go, oh, look, grass, 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 flower. Flower, grass, flower, bird. What else do? But they say, those are all grasses. Those are all flowers. By the way, Darwin was better than anybody at this. He was just he had a real eye for it. He was something special. Okay. Make sense so far? Most of you guys know this, as I said. Third problem is adaptation. It seems that different. Animals seem to be suited for different niches, for different environments. And different parts of your body were suited for doing different things. Your eyes good at seeing, not so good at pumping blood. Mm -hmm. Cows are good at eating grass and not so good at eating meat. Wolves are good at eating meat, not so good at eating cows. They actually are pretty good at eating cows. Hmm. That's weird. So what natural, natural selection does is it provides this mechanistic explanation of how this works. Okay? It shows how all these problems are related. And that's what great scientific minds do. They go, Oh, yeah, that, that, and that, it's because of this. And everybody else goes, oh, shit. Why didn't I see that? Science is full of people. Like, great moments in science are almost always like that. Everyone goes, oh, come on. Not uncommon. Right, so it's one of those, why didn't I think of that type of thing? And in a lot of respects, this, this basically happens when, when Darwin presents his stuff to the Royal Society and, and, and publishes Origins. People are like, oh, jeez. How did I not with the... Oh. So as this work, there's competition among living things. 
more things are born or hatched or sprouted from seeds or whatever, though as we know plants are boring and we don't care about them, than reproduce. Then live to reproduce. Okay? Uh, reproduction occurs with variation. So there's variation in reproduction. In other words, each individual is different. As a rule. So, and that there, this is the key part. The variation is heritable. And there's no science of genetics yet. But he, Charles Darwin knew it wasn't just some sort of weird blending of the two. There was something else special going on. He was, by the way, part about how this works in the origins is laughably wrong. But it's try. And he knew it wasn't just some kind of blending of things like putting together two things in a solution. So that's cool. He kind of knew it couldn't be that. And of course, right around here, you got Gregor Mendel figuring out stuff about genetics. So he knew it wasn't some kind of blending. There's this whole bit about granules of heritability. It's a little crazy. Possible, it's small. Okay. So selection determines what individuals enter the adult breeding population. That selection is done by the environment. Those which are best suited reproduce, and they pass those well suited characteristics on to their young. So, a well suited characteristic for, I mean, a classic example, one that Darwin saw was the salt and pepper moth, which used to look like, well, salt and pepper looked like it was white with black specks, and then the Industrial Revolution happens in England, and all the trees are covered in soot. Because there wasn't a lot of environmental legislation in the 1850s. Go read a Dickens novel. <coughs> hey, sir, can I have some more? Now, most of the moths then become just obvious to, 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 to birds they eat. Except for some that have a whole lot of black on them. <coughs> camouflage. <laughs> Suddenly there's no more salt and pepper moths, but there's black moths. Which sounds kind of goth to me. What was the black moth spider? Black moth goth. Interestingly enough, environmental legislation happens in the 1960s. Things get cleaned up, and suddenly the black ones are now obvious. And now we go back to the salt and pepper ones because they look like they're on tree bark. They're cool. I mean, Darwin saw this in. Darwin was a gentleman. English country gentleman. He had pigeons on his property, for example. And um, he knew that when you had two pigeons that were fast and you bred them together, you had fast, you had fast babies. Right? Um, he knew that you had different breeds of cows. You know, cows, there's no such thing as a wild cow, you know, right? Like cows, people invented cows. Sheep too. Those are things wild sheep and wild cows. We invented them. Humans way. Humans took these things called arcs and bred them to the point where they became an entirely different species. Cows. Native people in North America knew this. They would breed different kinds of crops together. And you start think about you, I don't know if you know what corn looked like ten thousand years ago. Before agriculture. Very tiny it was. A little tiny one kernel. And again, native people here knew they said, oh, cross this with this, this with this, and eventually they give certain characteristics, and you end up with corn. Right? So, 
That's, he called that artificial selection. Natural selection is when the environment makes this. So how does this work? Reproduction is the key, not survival. So you have to re reproduce and pass those genes on. So if you survive to be 128 but have no children, you're not doing as well as I have because I have reproduced. I keep these pictures because I love seeing old pictures of my children. The kid at the bottom is 16. One at the top is 24 and started a PhD in behavioral neuroscience and is embarrassed as hell that I'm doing this right now. The best part was when she took this class and that picture was there. Haha, <laughs> look, there she is right there. That's her. She's 10 there, about to blow out the candles on her birthday cake. By the way, I had to relight them because he blew them out. <laughs> to this day, he does that. My wife lit some candles downstairs the other night. We were just sort of hanging out watching TV. Didn't want to have the lights on. Comes over. It's not a freaking party. It's the candles. you think you are. So, the traits may be successful, whatever the hell those may be. Um, and assume I've passed those on. Now, I am more, not I am more. Fit. I am more. The 128 year old guy. So, survival of the fittest, which is something Charles Darwin never said. He says that. What it really means, though, is survival of the best adapted to reproduce. Fitness actually means reproductive success. It doesn't mean because throwing like bull. Okay? It means reproductive success. So the problem is, the answer to the trilogy of problems is descent with modification from a common ancestor. This is, this is in quotes because it's from Origins. Descent with, com with modification from a common ancestor. Not random modification, modification shaped by natural selection. So the modification over time is not random. Make sense so far? I think you guys probably all know this. Biology students have been taught this for a long time. Okay, there's different types of selection. There's directional selection. This is what we think of when we think of, of, of evolution, typically, and selection. This is when we have an original population, there's the, the, the distribution of the trait, and then some extreme gets selected for and the distribution moves over. Human brain size is my favorite example here. So over time, we were selected for having bigger brains. Okay. So there's certain things that humans can't do. Like we can't run our prey. Over long distances, but not short distances. We can't fight them. Think about like these giant apex animal things we were eating. 
of even 10,000 years ago. Mammoths and mastodons. We can't outrun them. We can't outfight them. We can't just walk up and go, you want to go? Because <laughs> it'll take you down. You know what we can do, though? We can plan. We can plan. That's what we did. So, you know, you get together, you say, okay, you guys go here. We'll go here. It's like a football play. And we'll force this mastodon into this crevasse, and when he falls into it, we'll throw spears at it until it dies. And it will be delicious. Um, let's see, what about when the middle is selected for that stabilizing selection or normalizing selection? Um, nice examples here. These tend to go back a long time, well before, say, they were humans. Uh, bilateral symmetry. Inver Invertments. It's, it's, that's for some reason, it's an advantage. We all are. Uh, having two eyes in basically every vertebrate. Right? Two eyes. <laughs> it's not hair at all. Yeah, one over. <laughs> nice testable mark, isn't it? Um, I like disruptive selection because it's it's an interesting thought experiment. This is when we originally have distribution like this. And then the two extremes are selected for the middle selected against. So bimodal to unimodal? No, other way. Unimodal to bimodal. It starts with the dotted line? Yeah. Okay. Extremes are selected for. This is probably where the two, they, well, this is the idea as how the two sexes evolve. Not in humans, this is how sexual reproduction evolves. Long time ago. So let's say. So sexual reproduction just involves exchanging um, genetic material, right? So if you started out, so gamete size is your trait. You have a small gamete. Medium one or a big one. What's the advantage of having a small gamete? Yeah. Make lots of sperm. Gamete, sperm, or eggs. They're just sexless. You make lots. What's the advantage of having a really big one? Target. What? Target. Big target? Big target. Yeah, that's true. What else? Lots of, lots of resources. Resources. What's the advantage of having somewhere between the two? No. None. <laughs> it's not enough. You can't make enough, and you don't have enough resources. So the extremes get selected for. So we go from having two mating types to having male and female. Right? That's all theoretical. No one really knows that's how it works. But it's a nice guess. So it starts out with two mating types. And then one ends up being small, and one ends up being big, and we go from So, there are other approaches to evolutionary change over time, most of which are crazy. Lamarckism, this is the inheritance of acquired characteristics. 
The notion here was that one day giraffes really wanted the food up top so they stretched their necks. And you think, well, no, we thought that, did they? No, but you've heard things like this, right? Someday we'll all have giant heads and small bodies. What? Well, because we won't use them. Right? <clears throat> cave dwelling fish, there are cave dwelling fish, don't have eyes. Okay. Is that similar to the bats, how their ears are bigger than their eyes? Some of the bats, not all. Well, I mean, it's the case that that may be the case. Um, why would, why would say cave dwelling fish have no eyes? They don't need them. They don't need them. No. Not as much as us. No, clearly not. But it's not about use. Please, Joey. The ones with the eyes are more likely to get infected. That's right. Eyes, eyes get infected. Believe me. <laughs> uh, eyes also are hard to make. They're complicated. What's the advantage of having an eye when you, there's no light? There's none. What's the disadvantage? Then everything's disadvantage at that point. Right? Everything's a disadvantage. So therefore they wouldn't need them. No, they wouldn't need them, but it's not because of uh, disuse or no use. It's because having them confers no advantage. That's the important distinction, Theo. I, I thought you said natural selection doesn't care about advantage or disadvantage. No, it does. It, it, it doesn't care, but the effect on the animal, if you've got... If you're living in a niche that is literally completely dark, then having cells, having a piece of gear that responds to light is literally useless, right? Now, it doesn't matter that it's useless, but it now has no advantage. The only thing it can confer is disadvantage because it's easy to get infected. It's hard to build, right? Okay. Here's another one. We don't use our appendix, so it's disappearing. No. That's not why. We don't eat cellulose. The, your appendix is probably for... At a time, the appendix in our ancestors was used to digest cellulose, probably. So wood. You eat wood. So if you're hungry, you're going to just big, eat it. Eat a, eat a piece of desk. Just have a hunk of desk. Or eat some corn? paper. What's that? What about corn? What about corn? You can digest corn. No, you can't. Because you always find it in the toilet after. No, but that doesn't mean you haven't digested. You find all of it? No. Thank you. Um, <laughs> this is, that was a weird discussion. I don't want to have anymore. But <laughs> it's because having it confers no advantage and, ha and it can get infected and kill you. Up until very recently, having appendicitis too. Orthogenesis, this idea that there's a plan. You hear this one a lot. <coughs> Why aren't we evolving more? Won't someday all of us be able to fly? It's like there's a ladder, right? And like everything's trying to be human. Why are there still monkeys? That's my favorite when you hear a lot from the, from the creationist crowd. If humans evolved from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? Why is there still you? <laughs> uh, and your ridiculous argument. 
So it's like an evolutionary ladder. And it's not a ladder, it's a tree. Right? Intelligent design, which is this idea that it's creationism but with a fancy name. There's got to be a designer. I'll tell you something, if there was a designer, he's not a very good engineer. Or she. Or it. Or whatever. which I don't question. Do you go into church or synagogue or mosque or temple or whatever it is you do? On whatever your special day that is. So I'm trying to be very inclusive here. You walk in and go, okay, so uh, proof, please. Experiments need some science. You don't do that because it's fake, right? It's like, I, this is a thing I believe because I believe. Which is totally cool. It's totally cool. It's not my scene. But if that's what you're into, that's fine. But no one walks into church saying, oh, good, well, today's finally when they're going to they're give us those data of God. No one says that. That would be insane, right? Well, it probably are people, because there's seven and a half billion people in the world. Why somebody says that? It's not a scientific theory. Why is it not a scientific theory? Because you say, intelligent design says this. Oh, yeah, sure. There's evolution over time. Sure. Oh, yeah. Earth's uh, four and a half million years old. Yep. And uh, evolution goes like this. Also, God did. We, you don't need that extra thing in there. That's the thing. That's why it's not a scientific theory. You have a view because you're bringing in the supernatural. Because, you know, gods are supernatural. By definition. Questions? Alright, so next time we'll talk to you about questions.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>